We're in Numbers chapter um, 9 tonight. I think I'll use the lapel mic. I, I listened to my um, morning sermon. There's, there's a little bit of a tinny, tinny tin tin. I don't know what it is. Um, so we'll see if the um, lapel mic does better. Um, numbers 9. You remember we said last week there are two sections to it. We'll read the second section, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Numbers chapter 9, verse 15, God's holy word. Now on the day the tabernacle was erected and a cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up from over the tent, afterwards the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the places where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. When the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime, at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year, the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it. The sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. After the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray increasingly that you would forgive our sins for Christ's sake, cause us to believe what you would have us believe about yourself and the duty that you require of us. And all of it would redound to your glory. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think the title that we had comes from the word Shekinah, yeah, the glory of God. Shekinah means, uh, to, in Hebrew, to settle upon or to dwell with. And usually we refer to it as the Shekinah glory or the Shekinah glory of God. And so that was my original intention with the title, the glory of God. I think a better title for the sermon, really, because it's a very simple theme, is uh, God um, with us. Uh, God with us is, I think, the, the title of the sermon. So as we consider this particular holy cloud. As I've mentioned, we sometimes refer to this as the Shekinah glory. And in relationship to what we've been considering previously, there is that logical connection. We've seen the dedication of the tabernacle a couple chapters ago. Then we saw the dedication of the tabernacle servants, the Levitical priesthood servants. Then we saw a dedication or a consecration of at least one of the sacrifices, which is the Passover meal. And all of those things were the gospel and type and shadow And they taught the reconciliation of God's people who are unholy. And God provides for their holiness, their forgiveness, through all of those particular outward means. And then now we have the logical connection between those things, God's provision for the cleansing of of sinful man and the reconciliation of sinful man to God. And now God dwells with his people. That's what we're looking at here. 
So apart from those other things, we wouldn't have a chapter 9, 15 through 7, uh, 23, God dwelling with his people. What I want to consider uh, is at least my intention for the outline is something like this. We're going to look at the significance of the cloud. And then uh, secondly, I want to look at the appearance of the, the cloud. It has a twofold appearance. Obviously, uh, cloud in, in, uh, by day and then uh, fire by night. So the two forms of the cloud. And then the last thing, I want to look at uh, the remaining instructions by the cloud, which I will argue is obedience and um, faith. And our, our obedience flows out of what we believe. So let's look at the significance of this particular uh, cloud. Now, a cloud, just ordinarily speaking, is, um, is water vapor in the atmosphere and that's condensed into small droplets and ice crystals appear in the shape of um, the visible shapes and so on. And so what we have here is God is taking something which seemingly is ordinary or natural like a cloud or fire and he reveals himself to his people by these, uh, by these particular things. And so some of the lessons when God reveals himself like this in a visible way this is much like the Bible, because this is redemptive revelation. God wants to be known by man. It's stunning why God wants to be known by human beings. I, maybe I'll find the answer out in heaven. Why would, why would the God that we read, that was summarized in chapter 2, paragraph 2, God is this, God is that, why would that glorious God want to be known by the likes of us? Um, but he does. And that's what this teaches us. It, it teaches us that God is with his people, yes, but even more fundamental than that, God wants to be known by his creatures, and thus, by knowing God, we will love God. We will produce what we read from our secondary standards. Um, to know God is to love God. And God wants to be known, he wants to be loved, he wants to be worshipped, because he is lovable, and um, he's worthy of worship. So when we, see, when we see that God's revealing himself through these seemingly natural ways, though he does it in an extraordinary fashion, this is not along the lines of a pantheistic sense. And pantheism is a, a confusing of the creator with the creature. Deism is just the opposite. Deism is a divorcing of the creator from the creation. And pantheism is a confusing or amalgamation making the creator... Uh, and the creature one, along the lines of um, the trees are God, the wind is God, we are God, the God spirit within. That's pantheism. That's not what we're looking at here. So we maintain, because the Bible maintains, it, maintains the creature never becomes God. We never become divine. Sometimes people say, when I go to heaven and I'm in heaven, I will know everything. That's not true. Um, we won't be perplexed anymore, and I can't wait for that, because the, the longer I'm a minister and I'm a Christian, the more things perplex me, sad to say. But we won't know everything. To know everything would to, be, to have an aspect of divinity or deity. So we never become divine. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. Yes, we're reconciled back to God. But we never share of the substance of, of God. I would argue that's the very first lie of the, the Bible. Um, the devil woos our first, uh, tricks our first mother. Uh, and the lie is you can become your own God. You can become God, little gods. And so not in a pantheistic sense that we're looking at this cloud. It is in a miraculous sense. Now, clouds themselves are not miracles. 
if you look at our secondary standard, chapter 3 deals with um, the eternal decree. Uh, chapter 5 of the confession deals with providence, ordinary providence. I take my definition of a miracle from our secondary standards, which extrapolates our primary, and I take it to mean that when God doesn't use ordinary means, or he uses ordinary means against the ordinary properties. We've talked about this before. Axe heads don't float unless God makes them float. Virgins don't give birth to children unless God makes them give birth to children. That's a miracle. So when we're looking at a cloud, you say, well, I've seen clouds before. I've seen fire before. So he takes a thing and he uses it against its ordinary properties. Ordinary clouds and ordinary fire doesn't follow you around from place to place. So this is a miraculous cloud. So it teaches us that God wants to be known. It teaches us the God of the Bible, who is a miraculous God. I still believe in miracles, properly understood. And, um, um, but we're looking at a miracle. And then the particular miracle that we're connected that we're looking at, and this is the significance of the cloud, is, is what's known as a theophany. And obviously that's a compound word, a compound Greek word. Theos is God in Greek. And then uh, the phani part, part is the manifestation, the revealing, uh, the appearance. So this is a theophany, the appearance of God in these things. And the reason that this is significant is the Bible says, Jesus says, God is pure spirit, John chapter 4. So ordinarily, you cannot see God. God condescends, according to his own divine wisdom and power, to reveal himself in some kind of visible, tangible, audible way to reveal himself to um, his people. So this this is a theophany. This is a, a revelation of God, manifestation of God, and it is tangible to uh, the human senses. It, from what I can count, in the Old Testament, you have something like 50-plus theophanies. And, and primarily, they are contained in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, in some of the more triumphalistic passages, uh, the conquest passages, say, in the book of Judges, uh, Joshua, and some of the prophets. But conquest-type things. God is rising up to show himself present with his people, especially during those particular trying times. Let me give you one particular theophany, which is going to run contrary. We we would think, well, if it's a theophany, we would expect to see something tremendous. And sometimes he does do things tremendous. But other times, when God reveals himself, he'll reveal himself like he does to Elijah, which is antithetical to the way that the flesh thinks. The flesh thinks I want to see something fantastical, and sometimes God reveals himself, and I'll just reference it. It's First um, Kings chapter 19. How does God come and present himself in the particular theophany when, uh, when he shows himself to Elijah? In a small, still, what? Voice. That's the theophany. And so our flesh would say, do something tremendous, and God said, I'm not, I'm not in the earthquake, I'm not in this, I'm not in that. I am in this very small thing. But it was still a manifestation of God. That's a theophany. Now, the other names sometimes given to a theophany, again, just looking thematically or topically at the Shekinah glory cloud of cloud or fire, is um, it's sometimes seen in what the Bible will refer to as the angel of the Lord. And not always, but most often, 
The angel of the Lord is actually uh, Christ. It is a pre-incarnate um, manifestation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, rather than saying generally a theophany, under, in, under that you would say it would be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ, angel of the Lord. Let me give you one. You remember when Moses is being called and commissioned as a type of Christ himself, as a deliverer, God comes to him in, in what kind of a form? Again, another theophany in, in the burning bush. Exodus 32, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the, bu- the midst of the bush. And this is the angel. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the bush. So the angel of the Lord is actually called Yahweh or Jehovah and then Elohim. That's a Christophany. So that is a theophany, but specifically the second person of the divine Godhead. For me, personally, I tend to be more like Luther in this way and a little bit less like Calvin in this way. Calvin saw more theophanies and he was less willing to see more Christophanies. Um, and not that these guys, they agreed in, in theory on, on what they're looking at. But I just see, I see in the theophany more, more Christophany because the way that we see God, God the Father is pure spirit, invisible, Holy Spirit, same thing. The way that we see God with us, what, is, what does the word Emmanuel mean? It means God's with, with us. So for me, not all theophanies do I see as Christophanies, but mostly. Mostly when I see a visible manifestation, angel of the Lord certainly, mostly I see as a Christophany. Jesus says, this passage is God is with us. In Matthew chapter 28, before he ascends to heaven, he says, and lo, I am what? I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm with you forever and ever. So this is a God with us passage. And the way that we, Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, In Philippians 1, I think Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the exact representation of God the Father. So this is a, a representation of God with his people that I would argue is a Christophany. Now, the word angel, the word angel is Malak or Malachi. So when you look at the book of Malachi, Malachi is, it means messenger. So it can be a human messenger, like a prophet, like Malachi. It's Malak is the Hebrew. And then Malachi, I think the, I think, I think the, the suffix is my. I, get, I, I know my, my, Greek, my Hebrew is so picayune. But it's something like that. It's Malak. It's messenger. So it can be a human messenger, or it can be an angelic messenger, or it can be the divine messenger, even Jesus Christ. So, John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's the Malak. That's the messenger. John 12, 49. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. That's the Malachi. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, these things I speak, I speak as the Father has told me. As far as seeing Christ is to see God, God with us, Philippians 2.5, 
Have this attitude in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, that word is icon, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He has to be God to be equal to God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's Christ. So we're looking at a theophany. We're looking at a Christophany. Now, as we've said, this is God's manifestation of himself to his people. And this is testifying to his people what he's promised all along. That I'm going to dwell with you. And the Shekinah glory, the cloud, rests upon Israel, his people, or the land, and specifically the places of um, here, the tabernacle in context, and then later in the temple, which you have the, the Temple of Solomon, and then after that was uh, destroyed, you had the rebuilt temple under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, and then that was destroyed by uh, a Roman Titus in AD 70. But you have the Shekinah glory coming on the temple of the tabernacle. And We've mentioned this many times. These two structures are part of the Old Testament ceremonial system, which was the gospel for the, God's people. And it shows that, you remember God says, I'm placing my name here in the tabernacle, in the temple. Wherever God places his name, God's saying, I'm there. Now, when you have God revealing himself to his people, which this tells us, he wants his people to know, uh, to know him and to love him. And by this abiding presence, he wants to know that God always is with them, that he lives with them, and they live with him in this reconciled way. And when God descends in this cloud and rests upon his people, as it were, it's the presence of God localized. And here we come into something of a conundrum. Can you localize an omnipresent God? We've talked about this before, have we not? Sometimes... If you say, what is hell, people are taught to say in Sunday school, and I'm, I'm not picking, if you taught this in Sunday school, I really am not picking it on you. But people say, hell is where God is not. I understand what they mean by that, but that's not accurate. God is omnipresent. God is in hell. It's just his offended presence is there. His, his justice is there. And so it's the, it would be the absence of God's reconciled, friendly presence. So you can't have a place that God is not because he's omnipresent. He's the great I am. Psalm 139, I think it's Jody Grubbs' favorite psalm. And um, I don't know why I thought of that, but we, 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 I think we read it yesterday. But he, he says, Wherever, if I'm on the mountain, you're there. If I'm in the sea, you're there. Jonah was in the belly of a fish. God is there. So God is everywhere. He's the great I am. It's the infinitude of God, the eternality of God, the immensity of God. He's everywhere. Now, when God says, I'm here in a localized way, he's teaching us something. So we say, when we die as Christians, we're going to go to see Christ. And that's true. When we die, we're going to be with God in heaven. And that's true. And we say heaven is God's throne. And it's the place of his dwelling. And the earth is his footstool. It's all true. But again, we have to think, what does it mean when God localizes his omnipresence? He's teaching his people. He's teaching us that he is with his people in this special, reconciled, love relationship kind of way. That's what he's teaching. So I used to go to AA, and in AA, everyone in the room would pray the Our Father and there would be people that would openly say, we're not Christians, we don't believe in Jesus, and then we would all stand up and say the Our Father. 
And then when I became a born-again Christian, I know that that's redundant, but when I became a born-again Christian, I thought, can you say, Our Father, if you reject Jesus savingly? I know God is Father creatively in Acts chapter 17, but can you say He's your Father and you're His child salvifically if you reject Jesus Christ? No. Um, John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world, and then John chapter 3, verse 36, if you believe in God, you have eternal life. If you deny God, disobey the gospel, the wrath of God abides upon you. And so when we talk about the localized presence of God, he means to tell his people that he is for us, that he is our God in this loving, reconciled, kind way. Does that exclude that God might chastise us when, when we need correction? No. But this is telling his people, I am with you as a father to his children, by covenant, by gospel, by grace, that kind of thing. So when we say, rightfully, I'm going to be with God in heaven, that's the same principle. That localized presence of God indicates that we're his sons, he's our father, Christ is our brother, so it, it means to testify to his people that um, God is with us for, for uh, good. And not only in God is with us for his, our, our good, he wants his people to, I hate to say this because I forget the name of that woman's title for the book, he wants us to experience, I know that's dangerous to say, but he wants us to experience this reconciled God, this this love relationship such that we would... What's the catechism question? What's the chief end of man? Glorify God in two? That's exactly right. This is the joy part. So knowing that... Remember the Passover. Remember the dedication of the temple. Remember the dedication of the priesthood. That's so that we could be saved. When people say, well, I am saved. I, amen. I hope you are saved. You believe in Christ the Lamb who, tip, who is the antitype of all of these things. And in that... You're now a recipient of every blessing in the Bible. Yes and amen. God loves you and you love God. And even your love of God is a gift that he gives you. And then this is meant to, to engender, to, to work in us joy. Joy. Um, you say, well, Pastor John, someone should, ought to tell you. Well, I understand that. <laughs> if, I, if, 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 if someone has a predisposition to say non-joy, um, pray for that person. But to know God in Christ and to know that he dwells with us is meant to work in us joy. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 16? For, I don't know, what is it, verse 11? At that right hand, at your presence, are what? Forevermore. Joys forevermore. Jonathan Edwards, I know people say, well, Jonathan Edwards was a... He was not a fiery preacher. I know people think sinners in the hands of an angry God. He yelled. He wasn't. He was monotone and he read his manuscript. I manuscript, but I don't read my manuscript. He read his manuscript. I think Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish guy. He was another guy that read his manuscript, like looked, looked down. Have you ever watched a preacher like do that? I, I know a couple guys in Presbytery. They write wonderful sermons. They would be great reading. I can't deal with looking at a guy whose head's down. And, he's, and Spurgeon would say it's, it, it tastes like paper. It may, it may sound wonderful, but that was, that was Edwards. So sinners of an hands of an angry guard, he, he read but he wrote about the happiness of heaven. That's Edwards. The happiness of heaven. 
he said that the, the, the chief aspect of religion, the seed of religion, what was his, his book? Um, the, the Holy Affections or whatever. It, 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 was, it was love. It's this love relationship which is meant to engender joy in God's people. And when we think about going to heaven and being in the presence of this reconciled God, getting at what Edwards was getting at, John on the Isle of Patmos, this is what he sees. This is what this cloud is teaching the people of God. I saw the holy city. What's the holy city in New Jerusalem? What is it? What's holy city in New Jerusalem? It's the church. It's the glorified church. You have the 12 names of the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles and how they work. Judas and Peter, I don't know. Judas and Paul, I, Judas and Paul, I don't know. But you have 12 and 12. The old church, the new church, the church. And the bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's this. The tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. That's the covenantal promise. That's the covenantal promise that opens Genesis 17, that opens uh, Acts chapter 2, and that closes the Bible. In Genesis chapter 22, Behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me. What's the reward for the Christian? Jesus is the reward for the Christian. What's, why is heaven going to be heaven? We have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And he'll be among them. He'll wipe away. This is what Jody had me read twice. He'll wipe away, Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river in the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on the east, either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of nations. No more war. No more war. I quoted it this morning, or paraphrased Isaiah. There's three places. I know Isaiah, Micah, and another place. It'll come to me later. And men will beat their spears into plowshares. No more war. No more war. No more killing. No more tears. It will be eternal joy. God will be there in this reconciled way. That's what the people of God are being taught. And remember where they are. They've just gone through 430 years of slavery. They're two years out of, on freedom. They're liberated for two years. They've got another 38-year trek going through the wilderness. And God says, I'm with you. And I'm your God and you're my people. And even when they come into the promised land, the promised land was a real promised land, but it was typological. It was never meant to be ultimately, ultimately it. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Even the patriarchs knew that the, that the dirt was typological of heaven, the celestial city. Um, even the promised land, they couldn't drive out the Canaanites completely. They were still killing and everything else, even in the promised land. It was all, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Do we need to be told regularly, God is with you and God is for you? That's this. That's this. One of my favorite doctrines in the Bible, I don't know whether it's because of who and what I am, I love the doctrine of assurance. I love it. God is with you, God is for you, God loves you, you're forgiven, you're his. Even if you don't think so, you're his. Even if you don't think you're going to make it, you're going to hear well done. That's this. Now, this is the third time that God has revealed himself to his people in these pillars of, uh, of cloud and, and, and fire. So the first time was maybe, I forget how many months, out of, um, out of bondage. But in Exodus 13, Exodus 14, are the first two occasions where the people of God say, God is coming to us in this cloud, whether fire or cloud. Exodus 13, God led his people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. The sons of Israel went up in martial array, military array, from the land of 
uh, Egypt. As he's taking them out, Moses takes the bones of Joseph. He's going to bury them in the promised land. He made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones from here with you. They shall set out from Sukkot and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then when they come to the Red Sea, the same exact thing. You remember Pharaoh has a change of heart. He has decided either to uh, murder the Israelites or to re-enslave them in the same business. God comes in this theophany. He tells Moses to stand aside. And then he shows himself with with these various uh, pillars of cloud and uh, smoke. So this is the third presentation. So the people of God would have been familiar with it. The cloud, as I say, tells God's people, I saved you from slavery. I'm with you in the wilderness. And I'm going to take you all the way home. I'm going to take you all the way home. Um, And so let me say a couple of things about the the twofold expressions or appearance of the cloud. So in the day, we have, uh, it looks like a cloud or, or a pillar of smoke. And at the nighttime, it looks like a pillar of fire. And the reasons are obvious. Sometimes you think, well, what's the really tricky reason? It's always better to to look first for the obvious reason, and then maybe there will be some spiritual significance, which maybe I can bring out. But the first reason, when God says, I want to be known, and I want you to know that I'm with you, that I dwell with you in this reconciled way, the first reasons are obvious. In in the daytime, God would be better seen in this particular pillar of a cloud or smoke. And then at the nighttime, when you, if, you go, if you try this at night and you look up into the nighttime sky, let's say it's pitch dark. Um, do you see the clouds that are there? No, you don't. Are they there? Yes, but you can't see them. And so God provides for both occasions of day and night so God's people can look up whether they're in the day and they look to the tabernacle, the place of God's reconciled presence, or in the night, on any occasion, day or night, they can look and say, God is, is with us. This is, this is what Christ has said. I've mentioned this before. Sometimes we really depend upon another person. We love them madly, and we, we depend upon them intensely. They become our rock. I'm not against having these kind of folks in our lives. Actually, it's wonderful to have a, 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 a husband like this or a wife like this or parents like this or, or what have you, it can be wonderfully encouraging. But the, some of the downside of that is sometimes you look up or look around and they're no longer there. And not even for sinful reasons. Maybe in God's providential government, he took them away. Uh, whether he took them away just kind of physically or he took them away eternally away from you, they're not there anymore. And so you look up and your rock, your help, your hope, your comfort is gone. And then you become um, depressed or dejected or, or what have you. But God tells his people, I am all of those. I am preeminently your rock. I'm preeminently your joy, your comfort, everything. And I never go away. I never. There's never an occasion that I'll be separated from you. That is a glorious thing to hear. Um, all of us, have, we, we go through particular things. I, I know sometimes in the church we look around and think, well, that person has an easier cross than me and I have a harder cross, and that may be true. It is my belief, beloved, that no true Christian 
gets out of this life without a serious cross. We, we just, it just doesn't happen. You may not see their cross, but they have one. And sometimes when we're bearing our cross and it's difficult, and you know this is true, you can look around and think, I don't know if God is with me. I, I really don't know. This is testifying to us, even in those times when we don't know, He's there. He, he is always there. The God of the deist is not a God of the Bible. God does not take any breaks. If Jesus is low, I am with you even to the end of the age. God is with us, Hebrews chapter 13. That's this passage, day or night, in any occasion. And God wants his people to see it and back to that assurance. This is experimental religion. One of my favorite moderns is Morris Roberts. He talks about the felt presence of Jesus Christ. This guy bleeds Westminster. He bleeds Puritans. And when people hear like felt presence, experimental Christianity, are you some kind of mamby-pamby? Like, are you really a Pentecostal in disguise? Listen, no, beloved. If you are a husband, do you want to feel loved by your wife? Do you want to feel it? If you're a wife, do you want to feel loved by your husband? If you're a kid, a child, do you want to feel that your parents love you? Yeah, yeah, God gave us all of that. I understand we don't base our religion on that, but it's part of it. Remember the, the faculties of the soul, the intellect, the affections, and the volition, the will? It's part of it. God wants us to be able to look up at any occasion and to know, experimentally know, ah, he's there. He's there. He's there. That's this. That's this. Day or night. He doesn't go anywhere. This is Psalm 139. On the mountain, there. On the, in the valley, there. Laying in the hospital, there. You're at the funeral home, there. You're there. They're shutting off the electricity, there. You hear bad things about your kids, he's there. He's there. That's this. And uh, one writer, I forget which it was, I look at some commentators, and he says the light of the inside of the tabernacle teaches the, the, the priest that God is there. And God provides for the light outside of the tabernacle for us, telling us the same thing, God is there. And the reason I think this is significant is sometimes people think, oh, wouldn't it be cool to go back to the Old Testament and get to see all the stuff inside the tabernacle and the, the temple? The only bad part was, would be is if you're not a Levite, uh, you're not seeing any of that. <laughs> you don't get to see any of that. You're outside looking at some skins, and uh, that's it. Um, only the, the Levites, and so even if you're from the tribe of Levi and you're a female, you're looking at the skins. So God provides light for the workers inside. God provides light for the workers outside. He's always there. Now, I want to say, and I want to close the sermon with just what I think are two basic instructions in addition to some of the significant, significance that we've looked at regarding the cloud, particularly the movement of the cloud, the way that the cloud moves, whether it's in the cloud or the pillar of fire. And so what the people of God are being told is when the cloud stands still, you stand still. When the cloud starts to move, remember what the Levites do. We've said this is the reason they had the age category of 30 to 50 or 25 to 50 because these guys needed to be in shape because all day long they're breaking down stuff and carrying it. And so God says, when you start to see that cloud move, you, you break down that tabernacle, that tent, that tent, pack up all the gear. Remember how the, the, the camp is situated. 
we looked at it back in chapter two or three, I forget which, maybe four. The camp is set up like a rectangle, and the tabernacle is in, in the middle of this rectangle. All the various, three in the front, three tribes, and so on, so on. And then around the, t- the, the in the middle of that uh, rectangle, you have the tabernacle is right in the middle, and then the Levitical families surround that. And they get up and move like this. It's very orderly. And God says, when you see that cloud move, then you need to move. And when the cloud sits down, you need to st- sit down. There are two things that this is teaching the people of God. One is obedience to obey, and the other is faith to believe. Those are the fundamental instructions by this. It's very, very basic. But I want to I, I back up and say something. Um, there are things in the Bible which I feel like God has given me some insight into, and there are other things in the Bible which I'm less skillful with, some because I have less passion for it, and therefore I devote less time to it, uh, but, uh, but there are some things that I'm passionate about, but I just don't have the particular insight. God has not revealed them to me. The, um, the sacraments are very difficult for me to understand. I read on the sacraments, and there are guys way more gifted to me on sacraments. And um, I, I believe what our secondary standards say, the Bible teaches about the, secondary st- about the, the sacraments, but still it's mysterious to me. I do hold, as the magisterial reformers, that the sacraments are subordinate uh, to the word, which is primary. And I see some of that principle here, even with the movement of the cloud, and with the description of the clouds. And, and I'll explain what I mean. So these, these clouds are, we see them, as we've said in Exodus 13, Exodus 14, and then here in Numbers 9. If I took away the explanation of Exodus 13, 14, and 9, if I took away the word of God on these clouds, and I just showed you the cloud, what kind of sign would it be for you? It would be a moot. It would be a, a, a mute a sign. You wouldn't understand it. If you had no basis in Christianity, none, which is really hard to find in America, believe it or not, and I showed you the Lord's Supper, the elements, even the administration of it, without words, if I took away the words, so no administration by the word, or even a baptism, I took away the words, and you, you, you had no connection to any Christian, any Bible, what would that teach you? It wouldn't teach you anything. You, you wouldn't know. So the words of Exodus 13, 14, 9, explain the sign of the clouds. Again, it teaches the primacy of Scripture, the the secondary nature of the sacraments or of signs, but it's the primacy of the Word. Again, it's one of the reasons why I'm a Protestant, sola scriptura, Bible, 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 Word. Not denying the validity of the sacrament, but as explained by by the Word. So we see that, one, and then the, the people of God are being told to watch the cloud, when it stands still, you stand still. When it moves, you move. And the people of God are being taught the very, very, very basic principle of look to God, live upon God, listen to God, and obey God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what? What I tell you. This is called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a compound word. Antinomas, against the law of God. We live in strange times. 
On one day, you're, you're a classic legalist trusting in yourself, and the next day, you're an antinomian. An antinomian says, I love Jesus, but I have no intention of obeying him. Is it in Samuel? Obedience is better than sacrifice. And disobedience is the sin of rebellion. It's, it's, it's like witchcraft. And so God is teaching his people. What does catechism quiz? What does the scripture teach? The scripture principally teaches two things. What, duty God, what man is to believe about concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So believe and obey. So as Christian people, we obey not because we're trying to merit. If we're trying to merit, then come see me. No one who comes to this church twice. You, you cannot come to this place twice if you, if you can understand English and think that I'm telling you obeys to earn your way. I do nothing but say the opposite. But this is just Christianity 101. We obey because the reflex of faith is to obey. Faithfulness flows out of faith. And so God says, I want you to obey me. And to say that we are Christians and we disobey God it's antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. Yes, I understand we sin. I, I know all of that. But this is what the people are being taught. If you say that I'm with you in this reconciled way, what I tell you to do, I want you to do it. And the interesting thing about the obedience, God doesn't tell them in advance, and we all are, are guilty of that. I've done this. God, could you just give me the five-year plan? I'd, I'd, be, I'd obey so much better if you could tell me in advance. And when I'm going down to the trial, I want to know, is this going to end in death? For me and my loved ones. Is it, how is it going to work? And what does God say? I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. Well, I w- would like you to tell me, but I'm not telling you. When I move, move. And when I st- stand still, you stand still. Will you tell me what you're going to do tomorrow? No, I won't. And that's called living by what? That's called living by faith. So we're called to obey and we're called to believe. And in the belief, God is not telling the people the pattern. He wants them to look to him, to live upon him, to obey him. And then this faith business is the idea of trust. And it's a loving trust. Will you, will you trust me that if I take you there for a day, it's good? If I take you there for two days, it's good? A year, it's good? Remember... Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, I'm going to take you on a journey that should have taken 11 days, but you sin. I'm going to make the 11 days turn into 40 years. And God says, you know why I'm going to do it? I'm going to test your heart. And I'm going to reveal to you and other people what's in your heart, whether you love me or not, in the wilderness. And this is where, I think it was Samuel Rutherford. Maybe. I think it's Samuel Rutherford. Faith is being able to trust God in the dark. Will you believe that God is with you in this loving, reconciled way when all around is dark? All of your senses say, He is not for you. Will you love God, believe in God, trust God in the dark, in the wilderness? And will you say, God is good. That's this. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.